I hope that you had an awesome, awesome week. I am super excited about uh, chapter 10 of the story. But before we jump into that, uh, I want to start with this, um, this quote that I have. Um, a friend of mine who's a pastor is way smarter than me. Um, I have it on a slide for you there. Um, this is what he says. He says that what God speaks to you today, you'll go back to tomorrow when things get tough. Okay, what he means by that is, uh, as God speaks to you now, uh, someday you're going to need it. You're going to need to lean on it. You ever try to make a tough decision in a moment of pressure? Like when the pressure's on, you ever try to think clearly? Uh, it doesn't often work very well. But what God speaks to you today, that's the thing you're going to go back to. What God speaks to you in the quiet times when you are looking at his word, when you're spending time in prayer, those are the things you're going to lean on when things are difficult. Now, I'll confess, even as a pastor, there have been times in my life when I wasn't really giving God a lot of opportunity to speak to me today, uh, maybe because I just thought, oh, I'm a Christian, I have been for a long time, I already know. And so I didn't give God a chance to say new things to me, but what God speaks to you today is what you're going to go back to tomorrow when things are difficult. And I would even probably use that literally and say, what God speaks to you today, today, might just be the thing that you go back to in the future and lean on when things are difficult. So I hope that you're operating under the assumption right now that God's going to say something to you today as we talk about chapter 10. So we're working our way through the overarching narrative of the Bible. Uh, chapter 10 of the story is largely consists of the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have the story with you, you can go to chapter 10. If you have a Bible or a device with you, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's where we'll start. Uh, if you would like a copy of the story and you don't have one, it, we would love to give you one. Just, uh, just take your card that's on your seat, fill that out, take it to the connect table in the back. Uh, when we're done, we would love to give that to you. That would be our gift to you. So, uh, so chapter 10. Uh, let me just throw this verse out at you before we get going. It'll be familiar to a lot of you. It's Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Uh, now think about the opposition of those first two statements. Trust in the Lord, trust in yourself. One of those is clearly the affirmative. One of them is clearly in the negative, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In life, periods of uncertainty are going to force us to make decisions. Now, when we don't know for sure what to do, we get to make a decision about what we're going to trust in. Okay, uncertainty is going to sort of reveal, like pull back the curtain on what I'm leaning on, right? Am I trusting in the Lord or am I leaning on my own understanding? When I'm in a situation where I don't know what to do, I don't know how it's going to work out, that's when you find out what you lean on, uh, what you're trusting in. Life is going to give us all kinds of opportunity to make that choice. Now, I just encourage you with this. Uh, I think it's actually a really positive thing because when uncertainty hits, we have the opportunity to set a new course for our lives. Um, it's like driving into an intersection where you could go a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, when uncertainty hits, we have the opportunity to choose Am I going to follow God and trust in him and believe in him to do a miracle, or am I going to try and fix it myself? Uh, uncertainty, most of you probably lived long enough to face it at various times. Uh, sometimes we face it collectively. You ever had uh, an uncertain situation that like, affected your whole household? It wasn't just swirling around in your mind, but it was your whole household. 
or uh, like your community, even a church family can face uncertainty. Uh, if you were alive in 2001 and old enough to remember it, you remember that we as a nation faced collective uncertainty and we had an opportunity to set a new course. Now, that's happened several times throughout the history of our country. 1956, uh, less of us were alive to remember that. Uh, in 1956, the Cold War was on. Uh, communism was spreading rampantly throughout the world. It was sort of in vogue, it seemed like. And uh, it seemed in our nation that nuclear war was imminent. Uh, some of us, I'm one of them, I'm, I'm barely old enough to remember when we did like the drills where we hid under our desk as if that was going to make getting incinerated by a nuclear bomb somehow better, like being under the desk. Um, but it, it's just an outcropping of fear, right? In 1956, as the world is watching to see how America will respond, the character of our nation is being tested. To their credit, the leaders of our country adopted a new national motto. Four words, they printed it on all of our currency, in God we trust. And it set a new trajectory. Um, there have been many wonderful things that have happened since then and many terrible things, but I think we could all agree uh, we've been pretty prosperous as a whole, as a nation, over the last 70 years. Uh, I think largely because we set a positive course in moments of uncertainty. Uncertainty presents the opportunity for you to trust in God and see him straighten out a path that would otherwise be full of twists and turns, would otherwise be full of hidden dangers. So when we don't know what to do and we don't know what the future holds, we have this opportunity to declare what we do know. In God, we trust. So two weeks ago, chapter eight of the story, uh, we were looked at, we took an overview of a, a period in the history of the nation of Israel that uh, is referred to as the period of the judges. Now, surely that was a, a title that was created by some really smart theologian because if you're a theology professor and you want people to think you're really smart, you make everything sound as boring as possible, and I think they nailed it. So the period of the judges happened, and uh, the period of the judges was a period of 330 years in Israel where uh, they lived in this cycle, kind of a crazy cycle. Basically what happened would happen is God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into the promised land, and things were okay, and they settled into the promised land. Things are good. Things are peaceful. Things are prosperous. And what we do is the same as what they do. When things are good, they forgot about God and they started to move around the cycle. And eventually they sort of rejected God altogether. And then, wouldn't you know it, they started to get in trouble. And they cried out to God again. And God would send a judge. A judge was kind of like a, kind of like a national mom or a national dad. Uh, the first of the judges was a woman. And uh, so the judge would lead the nation back to a relationship with God, and he would restore them back to peace and prosperity, and then they'd forget, and then they'd get in trouble, and then another judge. Thirteen times they went around the cycle uh, in 330 years. Last week, Pastor Rick talked about the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Uh, if you weren't here or uh, if you're listening online and you didn't listen to it, you have to listen to it. It's such an incredible story, and he did such an amazing job with it. That situation happened during the period of the judges. And so where we're at this week in chapter 10 uh, is right at the very end of the period of the judges. And this is what the last line says. The last line in the book of Judges, it's Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, no leader. Everyone did as they saw fit. The King James says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, 
I don't know if that sounds familiar um, to maybe, you know, what you might have experienced in our culture, uh, but it was a mess for them, for sure. And so at that point, going forward, there's a period of about 74 years where there is no judge, and we haven't gotten to the period of the kings yet. They have no king. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what they saw fit. And so uh, this week, chapter 10 is right in that intervening period. Uh, a lot of weirdness happens in this season between the death of the last judge, Samson, and into the reign of the first king, King Saul. Israel's in this period of uncertainty, and so uh, we can really draw some things from them. They faced uncertainty, but in their uncertainty, they faced an opportunity. Uncertainty almost always presents an opportunity. Um, I don't think it's always easy to think of that, but like, i just give you an example, okay? I have a friend who's a business owner. He started his business the year I was born. So like, you know, 27 years ago. No, longer than that, actually. Uh, he's been at it for a while, and he's seen the economic climate go through the cycle several times. And so when 2008 hit, uh, and in the, between 2008 and 2010, get this, 70% of the companies in his industry, his direct competition, went out of business during, during the last recession. Uh, but he had been through the cycle before. And when faced with uncertainty, he realized, okay, this isn't forever. We're going to come back around the horn again. So he postured himself to think long-term, to see the opportunity in uncertainty. And wouldn't you know it, the market came back, all the customers came back, but 70% of the competition's gone. These are good times for him. Things are well. Uncertainty will present an opportunity. It's true in business. It's true in competition, in combat, even as a leader. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a leader, but almost everyone here has leadership in some way. You have people in your life that you have influence over. Uncertainty presents an opportunity. And Israel has the opportunity right now to turn and follow God once again back to a prosperous and peaceful future. Unfortunately, they also have the opportunity to try and fix it themselves, uh, just, like, just like we do. Uh, during these times, we cruise when things are good, right? Things are smooth in our nation right now. Uh, in general, maybe not so much politically, but economically for sure. Uh, and, and we kind of cruise. Have you ever noticed in your life, I hate this part, by the way, that um, the times that I actually like, put my trust in God and, and, and don't lean on my own understanding, those are usually during the periods of subtraction in my life, not the periods of addition. Is, is that true for anybody else? I think it probably is. Uh, God usually does most of his work in our lives during the times of subtraction, not addition. Now, someone could parse that and say, oh, no, no, Pastor Kelly, God's at work all the time. That's true, but when things are good, you're not paying attention to it. I believe God is at work all the time, but I think human nature says, and we clearly see it in the scripture, that it's during the periods of subtraction that we really cry out to God. So chapter 10 starts with this woman named Hannah. Uh, Hannah is an incredible figure in the story. She doesn't get a lot of airplay, uh, but Hannah is a godly woman. Uh, she, she seems really likable, the kind of woman you want to just have as a next door neighbor, and uh, she has this problem. She can't have children. Now, uh, probably some here in this room, maybe some listening online, you can understand, you can relate to that in like a direct, real sense, the pain, the frustration that comes with that. There's an added layer in her case because in her culture, if she doesn't have children, specifically sons, she is kind of rendered irrelevant to society. Uh, not to mention that if she outlives her husband, she has no one to take care of her, which is a really big deal for them. So to say that Hannah's discouraged is a massive understatement. 
Uh, couldn't be more of an understatement. So uh, Hannah, she decides to go and pray. And uh, on page 129, it's 1 Samuel 1.8, we see Hannah go and petition God for a son. And, uh, and she is experiencing all this discouragement. And uh, it's really funny. Some things never change. Her husband asks kind of a sequence of really stupid questions. So this is what it says in 1 Samuel 1.8. Uh, At the bottom of page 129, it says, Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Uh, There's a variety of things wrong. Uh, One, he seems to maybe claim claim ignorance. uh, Or worse yet, maybe he actually is ignorant uh, of her situation. Uh, And then there's kind of like this leveraging of guilt too, right? Like, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Yes, you mean a lot to me. And the most, the strangest part, like it seems like it kind of suggests food as a potential situation, uh, as a potential solution to this problem, which kind of is pretty weird for me. But uh, thankfully, she's a godly woman. She knows not to attack her husband. So she goes to the temple. She goes to pray. And it says that Uh, In her prayer, her prayers were so intense that the priest, Eli, actually thought she was drunk. Now, there's there's humor in that, but at the same time, uh, it also reveals the depth of her despair, just how much anguish she's experiencing. Now, I don't think you have to be intense or wordy uh, or boisterous for God to answer your prayers, uh, but there is something really important to see here, and that is uh, that Hannah went to God. She trusted in the Lord instead of leaning on her own understanding or maybe her husband's suggestions. Uh, She took her problems directly to God. She called out for a son. And she even purposed in her heart that if God would give her a son, she would return him to the Lord to be used for his purposes. Well, as it turns out, God hears her prayers. Uh, He gives her a son. She names him Samuel. Uh, Our oldest son, Micah, his middle name is Samuel. He's named after this particular Samuel. Uh, Because it says that the Lord was with this Samuel and he listened to God's voice. Uh, So Hannah has this dilemma, what I would think would be a dilemma. She told God she would bring him back if she had a son. Um, So when he's three, maybe four years old, old enough to not need his mom all the time, she actually takes him back to the temple, returns him to Eli to be raised there uh, to the tabernacle. On page 131, 1 Samuel 1.26, this is what it says. They brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Uh, We read about some pretty incredible people of faith in the Bible. Some of them we've read about already. Think about Noah. Uh, Noah built a boat a thousand times bigger than he needed it to be, hundreds of miles away from the ocean, with everyone standing around going, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. What's a boat? Think about the amount of faith it took for Noah to do that. He did it just because God told him to. Or how about Moses? God said to Moses, I want you to confront the most powerful person in the world, and then I want you to lead my entire nation out of slavery from under Pharaoh and out of Egypt. And Moses did it because God said so. There's other people we haven't gotten to. How about David, the teenager who confronted Goliath, simply because 
uh, he was mocking David's God. Nope, I'm not going to stand for that. How much faith would that take? Uh, think about the disciples. They walked with Jesus. Most of them were eventually martyred for their faith. There's some incredibly faithful people that we think, oh my gosh, if I had faith like that, wouldn't that be incredible? What I would say is, if you want to be like somebody, be like Hannah. Think about the amount of faith and the closeness of a relationship she must have had with God to take her son back and say, okay, I'm going to make good on it. I'm going to leave him here. Think about the amount of faith that must have taken, what her relationship, what her trust in the Lord must have been like for her to do that. Emulate Hannah's faith. Uh, walking on the water or parting the sea, like that's awesome. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but this is very, like, very touchable. Her relationship with God must have been incredible. In fact, uh, we actually named our second child, our daughter, Hannah Faith, after this Hannah, which is ironic because there are times when our Hannah would probably love to give our Samuel away. Uh, so aren't you just the faithful one? Uh, so, uh, so Samuel goes and he's raised in the house of God by Eli, the priest. And uh, he gets this really incredible call from God. Uh, oh man, I lost my slip of paper. Uh, I just, while I'm digging that out, I just want to say, by the way, thank you to Lindsay Dickin, who gave me a copy of the story in large print. Uh, you, have, you have changed my life forever. Uh, on page 131 in the story, Samuel gets this call from God. It's 1 Samuel 3, uh, beginning in verse 2. I'll just read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy. This is what happens. Samuel's there. He lives with Eli. It says, one night, Eli, the priest, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark was. And then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lie down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Now, things were much different in these days in the Old Testament. God would speak through uh, the prophet, through the priest. Um, so he would literally have conversations with people. Uh, we saw this early on in cases like God walked with Adam and Eve. Uh, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. This has been happening all along. Uh, but this is how he operates now, okay? So we have God's inspired word. That, they didn't have that at that time. Well, Samuel hears from God, and he says, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He, he does what we don't often do. He listens. He gives God the opportunity. And it's this listening and the response to what God says that are the beginning of Samuel's leadership in the nation. So eventually Samuel grows up. He becomes the leader, he succeeds. Uh, Eli, it's kind of a messy situation. You can read that in chapter 10 this week. 
Uh, but he becomes a great priest. He's a great national dad to the people of Israel, and he leads the nation pretty well. But at the end of his life, on page 135, something pretty interesting happens. It's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Samuel's, Samuel's an old man at this point. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered around and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old, as if he needed to hear that, and your sons do not follow your ways. And what they say next is a turning point in the history of their nation that has implications all the way up to today. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They want a king. What they wanted to do was they wanted to be like everybody else. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, uh, but if you want to follow God, you can't always be like everybody else. I think most of us have experienced that. Uh, you can either follow God or you can follow something else, but, but you can't just do both. Does that make sense? There, I'm not saying you have to be like crazy and be a weirdo. I'm saying there are going to be times when God is speaking to your heart, hey, listen, uh, we don't roll like that. And you're going to have to choose, do I want to do that or do I want to follow where God is leading me? Uh, you, you know that. When you follow God... You can't always be like everyone else. Now, the false assumption that they have, uh, that we can take heart in, is they assume that what everybody else had was better than what they had, and that's simply not true. Uh, the idea that life is better when you have no guiding belief system is simply not true. Uh, they assumed that what everyone else had was better, and they were wrong. And Samuel feels like they're rejecting him. He takes it personal, which is understandable. It's kind of the national dad, the spiritual leader. Uh, he takes it personal. And in verse 6, it says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Samuel's bummed out. He feels personally rejected. But God says, no, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. Israel goes wrong right here because God wants to be their king. They already have a king. They already have the leader that they're looking for, but they want to be like everybody else. They have a king, but they want to do it their own way. So Samuel says to them, listen, I'm going to appoint you a king. God's going to show me who it is, but God wants me to warn you that it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. God gives them an invitation to follow his lead, but instead they want a human king, so they, hit a, they, they decline the invitation. You ever get an electronic invitation? Uh, I got, uh, here's one that I got recently uh, to celebrate my own 21st wedding anniversary. Uh, and you can see there are choices at the bottom. You can accept, decline, or maybe uh, obviously, I think only one of those is the right answer in this particular case. Well, God's giving them an invitation to follow him as their king, and he's continuing to give us the same invitation. Uh, he's been doing this all along. He will do it until the end of time. My experience has been, certainly my observation has been, that when we decline God's invitation to go where he wants us to go, our situation is likely to decline also. Our life is likely to decline. But in spite of his invitation, they just keep bugging him. They keep whining about it. We want a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Riley, you have little siblings. You know what this feels like, right? 
Uh, we want a king. We want to have a king. Give us a king, Samuel. You ever give your kids what they want just to shut them up, knowing that they're not going to actually like it? Uh, like when they want to try your coffee when they're little. I remember my grandma. Uh, I don't know if my parents know this, so sorry if you're finding out now. Uh, I remember that my, when my grandma, I was like five years old maybe. It's one of my earlier childhood memories. Uh, one of the things I associate mentally with my grandma, you have certain like uh, associations that you make. Uh, like old Milwaukee beer. When I, when I like see an, an old ad for it or something, I'm like, yeah, I remember that. My grandma always had that, like 24-7. There was an open can of beer at my grandma's house. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to try it so bad. And she, she let me. And I hate the stuff to this day. Uh, I do not drink beer. I cannot stand it. I still remember the smell of that first sip. No thank you. Uh, so I, I made this, like, this crazy association. But she gave me what I wanted just to shut me up. And uh, she knew it wouldn't be good for me, and it wasn't. I hated it. Well, God does the same thing here with the king. And the first king in Israel is a guy named Saul. Now, the story of Saul's kingship starts out pretty funny. Uh, like, it starts out pretty weird. So Saul is this young, handsome guy. It says that he was actually a foot uh, or a head taller than everyone else in Israel. That sounds like freak show material to me. Uh, if you just try to think of someone who's a foot taller, a head taller than everyone else in America, uh, like, yeah, that person stands out in a crowd for sure. Uh, but he's tall, he's young, he's good looking, he's, he's really tall. And his dad was a guy named Kish. Kish was in the donkey business. Like, this is already sort of a silly start, right, to be in the donkey business. Kind of like maybe he was a car dealer today or something like that. And uh, as far as we know, Saul had no interest in God at this point. So God needs to get his attention. And God gets his attention by hiding his donkeys. No joke. Saul and Kish have literally lost their donkeys. <laughs> Jessica. Uh, so Saul's this young guy. He's working the family business, maybe dreaming of like taking over someday. And he loses all his donkeys. Uh, they get out. I don't know. Somebody left a pen open, whatever. He goes out in search of his donkeys. And several days go by, he can't find them, so he has a great idea. He decides that he's going to go to the priest, Samuel, and ask Samuel to ask God, I'm not making this up, if God knows where his donkeys are. That's, I, I know, it just sounds funny. Like I, some people are too holy and righteous to laugh at things in the Bible. I'm not one of those people. I'm just thankful that Jesus is, was holy and righteous for me. Because this is like an absurd start. Like, I'm embarrassed for Saul, like, when he knocks on the door, like, could you ask God, right, if he's seen my donkeys? This is, what's, this is what's happening. Well, much to his surprise, Samuel is actually waiting for him. Samuel's the priest. God has told him, when the guy comes looking for his donkeys, that's your guy. That's the king. So Samuel says, uh, listen, don't worry about the donkeys. They're going to be fine. By the way, you're going to be the first king of Israel, now, just drop into Saul's shoes, like, what's the first thing that goes through your head? Like, who sent you, <laughs> right? Like, are you messing with me right now? I just want my donkeys. But nonetheless, Samuel anoints him right there to be the first king of Israel. And that's not like the end of the, the silly part of his, uh, his beginning. Uh, no one else knows, so Samuel calls the whole nation together. He gets all the people together, and he's going to announce that he's going to announce the new king. And so... Uh, all the crowds are there, and Samuel goes through the 12 tribes, right? Like, is it Reuben? No. Oh, everyone's just, is Simeon? No. Oh, everyone's down. Finally, he gets all the way to the tribe of Benjamin. It's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. 
everyone cheers. The crowd's just going super crazy. And so then he goes through the clans, right, the families uh, in the tribe of Benjamin. And he gets down to the clan of Matri. And everybody cheers. Ah, the women are like, oh, I just love Matri, right? Okay. It's like when my wife and my daughter watch American Idol. Like, that's the mental picture. Not American Idol. Uh, the Voice is your current show. So uh, everyone cheers. Ah. And then he gets down. He's going to finally, it's like the finale. He's going to make the big announce- announcement. And the new first king of all Israel is Saul, son of Kish. Crickets. Saul is nowhere around. He's, he's not there. They can't find him. So, so the people, the funny part is they wanted, uh, God wants to be their king. They rejected God, but now they got to go ask God where their king is, right? Like you've ever burned a bridge with somebody, but then later you had to go back and ask him for help. That's what happens. Page 138, 1 Samuel 10, 21 says, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? They can't find him, so they ask. And the Lord says, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. So they rejected God, now they got to go back to him, and you can just picture like God's reaction, right? Oh, my me. He's like, Samuel, your boy's over there in the storage shed. Saul is hiding because he's afraid. He's afraid to be the king. The people hit the decline button on God's invitation. Saul hits the decline button on God's invitation. But nonetheless, the crowd finally just, they're just cheering out, in Saul we trust, or something along those lines. By declining God's invitation to make him their king, what you'll see is that the decline of their nation started all over again. The trajectory is downhill from here. Not only was the nation rejecting God, but Saul's doing the same thing. He didn't want to be king. He just wanted his donkeys back. Like, that's how this whole mess got started. He just wanted to go into the family business and live a comfortable, safe, predictable life. Uh, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I've definitely said no to God because I just wanted to be safe and comfortable. Uh, That's happened to me. God, I don't want to go where you're sending me. I just want to do my thing. I just want to stay in my lane. Now, one last story from Saul's life. There's so much in there, you'll have to read it. But uh, a story where uncertainty presents a real opportunity for Saul. Okay? It's something that we can really grab a hold of and, and put it to work in our own lives. Saul's the king. He's been at it for a while. and The Israelites are being pressed by another nation, the Philistines, okay? kind of a perpetual enemy of God's people. The Philistines are a much stronger nation, uh, The scripture says that they had 36,000 chariots and so many soldiers that they actually weren't able to count accurately their own army. And so Saul uh, receives a word from Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to go out to battle with the Philistines, but God is going and God is going to give you the victory over our oppressors. And he's really clear with Saul. He says, listen, you are outnumbered. You are weaker. You cannot win this on your own. You have to listen to God's voice. You have to wait for his instructions. Don't try it on your own. You can't win, but God can. So Saul sends out word uh, into the nation that everyone, all able-bodied soldiers, should come and be prepared to fight. Now, last time he did this, over 30,000 men showed up for the battle. This time, only about 3,000 show up. And uh, so Saul sends word, oh, he realizes, okay, oh, shoot, we're totally outnumbered, uh, and he sends for Samuel to come and pray and make a sacrifice. Uh, just parenthetically on the side, probably should have started there. That, that's a great place to start in all situations. 
but he sends for Samuel to come, and Samuel sends word back. He says, I want you to go to a place called Gilgal and wait for me there. Don't do anything. Wait for me there. I will come. I will make the sacrifice. He's the priest. That's his role. I will come, and then God will give instructions, and you'll go out and get the victory. Now, while they're waiting at Gilgal for Samuel to come, the soldiers start to leave. And Saul panics. I'm the king. I'm the leader. I got to take action. I got to do something. So he decides he's going to make the sacrifice himself. I can't wait for Samuel. Well, guess who shows up right after he makes the sacrifice? Of course, Samuel comes strolling in. He says, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul's like, I'm the king. I I waited for you. You didn't show up. I I felt like I had to take action, and I knew we shouldn't go out to battle without making the sacrifice first, so I did it myself. Page 142, 1 Samuel 13, 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people. Of course, that will become King David. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. The story of God and his people is primarily a story of faith. It's a story of trusting in the Lord and not leaning on our own understanding. What we learn from Saul's example is that partial faith is not faith. Partial faith is Uh, Partial faithfulness is unfaithfulness. It would be really similar to me telling Brandy, hey, uh, baby, I'm going to be totally 100% faithful to you like 90% of the time, right? Partial fidelity is not fidelity. Partial faithfulness is not faithfulness. We see that in Saul. It would have been the same as if he would have just rejected God completely instead of just hitting the maybe button all the time. But thankfully, what we learn about God is that He's gracious to us as we grow in our faith. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Uh, If you read this week, you'll see that Saul refused to grow in his faith. He he kept hitting that maybe button, staying kind of partially committed to God's invitation. But if you've ever gotten an electronic invite, uh, there's the decline button, there's the accept button. What does the maybe button mean? It means I'm not coming, but I haven't thought of a good reason yet, right? But maybe most of the time means the same thing as decline. Sometimes the hardest words for us to say and mean are just the simple words of our national motto, in God we trust. Uh, It's easy to say, but it's really hard to follow through on all the time. In God, I trust. Sometimes that I forget, I forget that God didn't just save me from my sins so I can go to heaven someday when I die. He's also saved me to a purpose. He's also saved me to being part of his plans for my life. And maybe the uncertainty I'm faced with, if I would just say, in God I trust, would be the opportunity I need to see God do a miracle, to see God straighten a path. But in order to see God do what only he can do, I have to resolve where I'm going to put my trust, what I'm going to trust in. Today, today, you can choose to seize that opportunity that's presented by uncertainty. Now, I think probably for most of us, Um, There's probably some uncertainty happening, but there's also probably a lot of certainty. Like I think we all recognize we just live in kind of a comfortable time uh, in our nation, certainly, and uh, in a comfortable part of the world. We have a pretty high level of certainty. I'm not like criticizing that. It's just a point of fact. Uh, but, But we can also seize the opportunity that uncertainty presents by choosing in advance, resolving ahead of time that in God, 
I'm going to trust. I'm going to put my trust in God. Think about this. What would have happened if Saul would have resolved beforehand to trust in the Lord instead of trying to make a critical decision under pressure? He, he probably would have chosen differently. He probably would have seen more clearly. So wherever you're at, trust in God. If you're feeling lonely, if you're in a lonely phase of life, trust in God. If you're in an uncertain phase of life, trust in God. If you're single or you're married, trust in God. Maybe you're single again, trust in God. Uh, Maybe you're disappointed by someone, trust in God. Maybe your financial situation is difficult, trust in God. Maybe you're in abundance financially, trust in God. When you're confident or you're insecure, trust in God. When you're in control or, or afraid, either way, trust in God. If you're feeling anxiety or you're feeling certain, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him and he will make a straight path for you. I'm going to pray really quick and then we're going to, uh, and then we're going to head out. I'm going to ask you if you would stand for me, uh, with me. I'm going to just pray right along the very same lines of this verse right now. And I want to encourage you to resolve ahead of time, to resolve today that I'm going to trust in the Lord, because that might just be the thing that you come back to tomorrow when things get difficult. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that is put in front of us on a daily basis to trust in you. Lord, today we resolve that we'll trust in your ways. Today we resist the urge to lean on our own understanding God, we submit our ways, our plans, our desires, our hopes to you, and we trust that you'll make a straight path for us through whatever we're facing. God, I pray that you would give us the incredible ability and humility to submit to your way in all things. God, I pray that you would uh, just pull back the curtain on the things that we don't understand so that we could see what you're doing. We God, I pray that you would give us as a people, as a church family, as a community, unbelievable resolve to trust in you in all things. I thank you so much for this family, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me just throw a couple things at you before you head out. Uh, growth track.